Let me pray for us. God in heaven, we are um, coming to your word now, to the preaching of your word. And Father, I pray that you would help me to be uh, faithful in what I'm doing here. And I pray that you'd speak through me, but speak over and above me and even against me if necessary. Uh, But Father, speak to your people today and encourage us and and build us up in the faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're getting to um, baseball season. Those of you who haven't noticed yet, spring training and and preseason is underway. And I thought it might be an appropriate time uh, to think back as a cautionary tale uh, as we get excited at the beginning of season, to think back to the 2011 Atlanta Braves. Now, those of you who who follow the Braves know that in 2011, they started out, it was a great year. It looked like they were heading to the playoffs. Uh, At the end of August, they had a 10 and a half game lead in their division. After the first week in September, it was down to eight and a half, but it still looked like they were probably a shoe in for the playoffs. Well, they proceeded to go 9-18 and 18, uh, over the last month of the regular season. They lost their last five games in a row. And then in the very last game, they lost 4-3 to three in the 13th inning uh, and handed the wild card to the St. Louis Cardinals. All right? they, they started out with a bang. They started out great. They just couldn't finish. They didn't finish well. And those of you who follow sports know that that's more common than we would like to think about many of our teams, that they just don't finish well sometimes. Uh, Those of you who have dieted know this as well, right? Sometimes the diet starts out great, and then it just kind of paleo anybody, and then there's the carb binge afterwards. Uh, Sometimes it starts out so great, but you just don't finish well. Uh, It it happens in all these things. It happens sometimes in our our walk with Christ as well. Uh, I had a friend in Boone when we lived there who was diagnosed with cancer, and it was the cancer that eventually took his life. And I remember him saying, you know, there's so many Christians that just don't finish well when it comes to the end of their lives. And he said, I really want to be somebody who finishes well. And and he really did. He really was. Uh, Well, we're in this study in the book of Judges, and we're looking at Gideon for the fourth week now. And unfortunately, as you're going to see when we read this text, Gideon... Uh, for all of the grace that God demonstrated to him in his life, for as well as he started, Gideon doesn't finish well. Uh, this is somebody that's in kind of the Bible Hall of Fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, and yet, at the end of the day, he doesn't finish very well. So, so what do we do with that? What do we do with a, with a text like that that we're approaching this morning? What can we learn from somebody who, for part of his life, appears to be this spiritual hero, and then he just kind of fades uh, at the end. Several years ago, I had a couple of friends who wanted to hike a section of the Appalachian Trail, and they were doing, I don't remember what it was, something like 35 miles or so in three days, um, and I was dropping them off and one and picking them up, and one of them was a vegan. And I remember dropping him off on the trail with his chacos and a bag of rice and some carrots, thinking, this, this is not going to go well for you. You really need some protein. You need some food. Anyway, three days later, I pick them up and take them to a barbecue joint in Blowing Rock. And I'm telling you, if, if that barbecue joint served that meat, he bought it and ate it that night. Chicken, ribs, brisket, the whole nine yards. He was chowing down on everything he could. And, and, and what had happened there, he really hadn't planned for the long haul. He hadn't thought about what he was actually getting into 
And so he wasn't able to finish well. Well, maybe he did finish well, depending on how you look at it. Um, but but, but he, he, he ran out of gas. He ran out of gas there on the trail. He wasn't prepared for the long haul. What I want us to see, I want us to look at Gideon in that light this morning. Uh, how can he be a cautionary tell for us as to, and point us as to how we might run the Christian race, the, the race of the Christian life well? Uh, how can we finish well? How can we take part in what Eugene Peterson calls this long obedience in the same direction? And so we're going to read this, um, but I want to I set it up a little bit in terms of where we are because we're kind of picking up in the middle of something. And then instead of reading it all on the front end like I usually do, we're going to kind of read it as we go and break it up a little bit and talk about it as we go. So here's where we are. Remember, Gideon was introduced because God's people had turned their back on him once again. He gives the Israelites over into the hands of the Midianites. Things finally get so bad that they cry out to God for deliverance. He raises up Gideon as a savior to deliver them. Uh, last week, we saw Gideon's getting ready to lead the people in the battle, and God says, you can't take that many people with you. And so he makes a bunch of them go home, and then they get ready to go again. He's like, you can't take that many people with you. And he basically whittles it down to 300 men to go and fight this vast Midianite army. And he says the reason he's doing this is that he doesn't want them to be able to boast in themselves that they achieved the victory. He wants them to know that salvation, that victory comes from the Lord and not from their own strength. So they go down to the camp and they've got their, you know, they've got their candles and their swords and they basically stand around outside the camp uh, holding these torches and, and blowing, their, blowing, their, um, blowing their trumpets. You know, they don't, they don't lift their sword to do anything. They're just standing there ringing the outside of the camp. Uh, and God calls the Midianites to just freak out and they start attacking each other instead of the Israelites. And then they run. They make a run for it. And so Gideon begins to pursue them, and as he does this, he calls the other tribes of Israel to join him in the pursuit of the fleeing Midianites. Uh, one tribe that responds is Ephraim, and they respond, and they catch two of the princes of Midian, and they cut their heads off, and they, they bring them back to Gideon, right? And that's where we're picking up in that scene, okay? That's right where we are in the text. So uh, Gideon, excuse me, um, Judges chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. I feel like John Travolta trying to pronounce Old Testament names. Anyway. Um, and the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba, 
Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. All right, so let's stop right there. Uh, here we are. The, the, the men of Ephraim have caught these princes of Midian. They've killed them. And they basically come to Gideon and say, why did you wait so long to call us? Right? Why, didn't you, why, why didn't you let us get in on this at the beginning of the fight? Why did you leave us for kind of mop-up duty here? And, and Gideon does this. It kind of feels like this Jedi mind trick that he pulls on these guys. Uh, he, he basically says, look what a great thing you have done. And I've done nothing as great as what you have done. You guys are so wonderful and I'm just a little peon. Uh, and I have this picture of these kind of Andre the Giant looking guys going, Oh, yeah, yeah, we're the, we're the tough guys. Well, thanks for letting us help, Gideon. And he, so he completely diffuses the situation uh, with the people from Ephraim. So he sets out from there, and he's pursuing the Midianites again. And he comes to a place called Succoth, and his men need some food. They need food and water and rest. And, and, the, and the guys in Succoth basically say, why don't you come back and talk to us after you capture the Midianite kings? Um, they were worried about declaring allegiances too quickly. What if he doesn't capture the Midianite kings? What if they come back again? And so they don't really want anything to do with this. And Gideon says to them, okay, I'm going to go whoop up on the Midianites, and then when I finish dealing with them, I'm going to come back and deal with you. And then he proceeds on to the next city, and the same deal again. Can you give us something to eat? No, we're not doing anything for you. Okay, fine. I'm going to go get the Midianites, and then when I get done with them, I'm going to come back and deal with you guys. All right, so that's, that's where we are so far. Now look in verse 10 again. Now Zeba and Zulmana were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeh and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So, okay, Gideon captures the, the Midianite kings, and then he comes back and he does what he said he was going to do. He, he whoops up, I, I, whatever that means, he whoops up on these guys in Succoth. And then he actually tears down a tower and kills all these people in Penuel. Now, <clears throat> you, you, you've got to see here that these are not Canaanites. These are not Midianites that Gideon is killing. He's actually turned and he's killing his own people, the people of Israel. All right, verse 18. 
Then he said to Zeba and Zalmanah, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmanah said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. All right, you read this and you get the sense that this has shifted from a battle that God had called him to, to, to wage independence on God into more of a quest for personal revenge. Gideon is just kind of kept going and he's angry and he's mad and he's taking matters now into his own hands. So what can we learn from this? What, what sort of application can we draw from the first half of this chapter? I want you to imagine somebody for a minute who is living for their career, living for their career, someone who is driven to succeed in, in, in whatever field you want to pick. They're driven to succeed in it. Uh, maybe it's so you can be wealthy and independent. Uh, you know, maybe it's so you can prove something to yourself. Maybe it's something you can prove something to your parents. For, for whatever reason, you're just driven to succeed in this field. What do you think the worst thing that could happen to this driven person, maybe it's you, what do you think the worst thing that could happen to this person would be? All right, our, our immediate thought is probably, well, the worst thing that could happen to them is that they could fail. Because obviously their whole life is tied up in this, and if they fail, they're going to be devastated, right? They're going to run, jump off the bridge if they actually fail. And, and it probably would be brutal. Uh, for this person if they failed in this thing they had banked everything on. But what also might happen is that they might stop idolizing their career, idolizing success. They might realize finally that success can't really fulfill you, that it's not really going to bring the happiness that you thought it was going to be. And so while it would be a, a hard thing to deal with, it might actually have the effect in that person's life of, of causing them to let go of their Jesus replacements and actually grab hold of, of Jesus as their savior. But on the other hand, what happens if you make it? What happens if this person succeeds? Now see, I would say that might be the worst thing that could possibly happen for this particular person is if they succeed. Because if you succeed, does your idol ever really get exposed? Will you be more proud or less proud than you were before? Will you be more enslaved to your idol or less enslaved to your idol? Will you be more likely to treat people with humility or less likely to treat people with humility? Failure, look, it, it does bring its own set of baggage that, that we have to deal with if we're going to be in it for the long haul, so to speak. But at least when we fail, it leaves us longing for a better savior than the ones we tend to look to. When we succeed though, when we succeed, it can be really hard to see why we need Jesus anymore. 
because haven't I gotten to where I wanted to be? So I want to suggest that one of the reasons that Gideon doesn't finish well and one of the barriers to our uh, being faithful for the long haul is success. One of the things we, and I'm not saying, I hope none of you succeed. That's the lesson, go home. Now, what I'm saying is we have to be very cautious about our success because it can be very dangerous and it can actually be an obstacle to our finishing well. Uh, Gus Malzahn is, is the coach of Auburn University and he was asked, when they were getting ready to play in the SEC championship game, he's like, what was the hardest thing about getting your team ready to play Missouri in that game? And he said it was getting them to forget about the ending of the Alabama game because that play was just on television. It was everywhere for a solid week. And you just, you, you just had to rip the players away from that and make them quit thinking about their success so they could actually get ready for the next game. Uh, Gideon has had here this, this major success on the battlefield. Now, it was all God's doing, right? I mean, God made it very plain to him that it was all, all his doing. But Gideon seems to have forgotten that already. Even as he's pursuing, even in the mop-up duty, he's already forgotten who it was that gave him the victory. He's furious with the men at Succoth. He's furious with the men at Peniel because they're not giving him the respect he thinks he deserves. Don't you see what I just did? Don't you know who I am? And yet here they are refusing to help him and go along with him. And so he turns on them. He's not patient with his own countrymen. And think about how ironic that is. Uh, how hesitant was Gideon to actually go in to fight the battle to start with? And God had to keep reassuring Gideon, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to go with you, I'm going to defeat the Midianites. And yet Gideon exercises none of that same patience. He doesn't point them to God and what he can do at all. He just gets mad at them because they disrespect him and won't go with him to chase after uh, the Midianites. And, I, and you listen to him, and I kind of want to say, you know, he, he's, acting like a, he's acting like a musician, a celebrity musician who showed up, and, you know, the musicians have their writers, which is the list of everything they want for them before they sing. And he's kind of acting like a spoiled celebrity who didn't get everything on his writer. Um, Madonna has on her writer, her dressing room has to be set up like her house, okay? When she gets ready to sing, you have to have the dressing room, it has to look like her house, which means they have to ship her furniture all over the world to get it looking just like her house. Uh, Motley Crue on their rider. Here's some of the things on their rider. And this is just for fun. Um, they have a, a jar of creamy peanut butter, a 12 foot long boa constrictor, a jar of gray Poupon mustard. And then my favorite, they have to know, they have to have a list of all the local Alcoholics Anonymous meeting locations. Just in case we blow it after the concert, we need to know where to go, okay? And so all of those things are on their rider. And, and you feel like Gideon is like this, he's this celebrity who's demanding this special treatment now. But it's actually much worse than that because he's not just a celebrity. He, he's more like an out-of-control general who's just like, daggummit, everybody's going to do what I want done now. They're going to do it my way. And he, he feels to be kind of like uh, Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men. Uh, where, where Tom Cruise has finally baited him into admitting that he ordered the code red and, and Jack Nicholson just blows up and he says, I have neither the time nor the inclination 
to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. And Tom Cruise is yelling at him, did you order the code red? Did you order this guy to get beat up? And Jack Nicholson finally breaks and he says, you're blanketly bearing, right, I ordered the code red. His success and his power had just gone to his head. So he's like, I can do whatever I want to do and you pay me the big bucks to do this and I take care of business. And so you shouldn't question the manner in which I do my job and you should respect me for it. Gideon's in that kind of position. Uh, he's forgotten that the reason he was successful is because of God's grace. It wasn't because of Gideon. He's demanding respect. When he doesn't get respect, he actually flies into a rage here. And then the whole time, you see, he's completely blind to his own actions and his own heart. He doesn't even realize what he's doing. If you and I want to finish well, if we want to be faithful for the long haul, we need to remember God's grace. That whatever success you may have had, whether it's with school or with your job, career, spiritually, that that's all God's gift to you. And we need to remember God's grace. Uh, we need to be careful and, and remember that and not get caught up in our own hype. Uh, secondly, we need to be suspicious of our own hearts. We need to be suspicious of our own hearts. Uh, there was some Christian leader and I, uh, this past week who once again got caught up in a big scandal. And it's easy to see these guys and think, oh, I can't believe he did that. He, he, I may be messed up, but I would never do anything like that. I think we need to be suspicious of our own hearts because it really is true. If not for the grace of God, there go I. So we need to be suspicious of our hearts. And then thirdly, we need to have people who will call us on our junk. Uh, call us when we're, when, when we're just caught up in our own hype. Call us uh, when we're sinning and going after our idols again. Because notice here, Gideon didn't have anybody who could call him out. There was nobody who could really stand up to him and, and point out what was going on in his life. We need people who will speak honestly in our lives. And we need people who we will listen to if we're going to be faithful for the long haul. Well, let's go back to the, to the text. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel the son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. 
And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. All right, so they finish with a mop-up duty, and everybody gets back, and the people of Israel come to Gideon and like, will you be our king? And Gideon, and this is probably the, the last time he does the right thing, he does the right thing here, and he says, no, I'm not going to be your king, and my son's not going to be your king. God is going to be your king. I'm not going to rule over you. But then what does he go and do? He immediately goes, he said the right thing, but he goes and he, and he does the wrong thing. He says, I will not rule over you. I will not be your king. And then he immediately goes and starts to live like a king. Uh, he asks him to bring all the spoils of the battle. He uses these gold earrings. He makes an, an, an ephod, an idol, and we'll get back to that in a minute. He takes many wives. And then he has a son whose name is Abimelech. And this is kind of the key to the whole thing. Because do you know what Abimelech actually means? Abimelech means my father is king. Okay, so this guy's like, no, no, I don't want to be king. Um, and, and then he says, I'm going to name my son. My father is king, and he proceeds to live like a king. Just, just treat me like one anyway. I'm not really the king, but why don't you treat me like one? If we're going to be in it for the long haul, um, be cautious of success, and don't underestimate how much you still want to be king. Don't underestimate how much you still want to be king. It's, it's really easy to pray, thy kingdom come, when what's really in my heart is, is my kingdom come. It's really easy to quote Philippians 2, consider others better than yourselves, when what I really want is for people to serve me and my interests. It's really easy to come to a worship service where I say, Christ is king. And then I go back the rest of the week and I live as if I'm the king as if I'm in charge. Don't underestimate how badly your heart still wants to be king. The other thing is distressing in these verses is that remember Gideon back in chapter six, he went to his home hometown and he tore down the idols there and he built an altar to God. And now here he is in chapter eight and he's back in his hometown again and he's put up this ephod. Now, what in the world is an ephod? Well, it's used in a couple different ways in the Old Testament. At most of the places, it's used to refer to a garment that was actually worn by the high priest of Israel. But in other passages, and this seems to be one of them, the word is actually associated with some type of idol worship. Because what does the text read? All Israel hoard after it, and it became a snare for Gideon and his family. So this is not a, whatever it is he's done, this is not a, not a good thing that he has put up here in his hometown. It's in some way associated with idolatry. 
be cautious of success. Uh, don't underestimate how much your heart still wants to be king. And don't get cocky when you feel like you've dealt with the idols in your life. Because they have this way of popping back up again when you least expect them. Uh, often it may be when you feel like you're, you're doing great and you have things spiritually under control and you kind of uh, lay off your reading of scripture or whatever. Uh, and then out of the blue, this temptation comes that you haven't been faced with in forever. And here you are bowing down to this idol that you thought you had torn down years ago. Your desire to be king, to want to be king, is going to pop up again. Your idolatries are going to pop up again. So what do you do if you want to be faithful for the long haul? You're being cautious about success. Uh, you're being watchful because you know that uh, you know your own heart, your own propensity to want to be king. You're aware of your idols. What do you do? Well, just a couple of things. One, Jesus tells us to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. That one of the things we just need to be regular about doing is making use of both the public and the private means of grace in our lives. We have to watch and pray. Uh, secondly, we need to confess our sins to one another. Uh, when we do find ourselves getting hung up again and it being all about me and my desires, we need to confess our sins to one another. Uh, thirdly, we need to remember God's grace. That it's all of God's grace from beginning to the end of the Christian life. It is all of God's grace. And I am just as dependent on him now as I was at the beginning of the Christian life. And I need to maintain that posture in my life. And then fourthly, we really need to be familiar with our idols. Maybe that's sex, maybe that's money, maybe that's power, uh, maybe that's image. Whatever these things may be, uh, we need to continually... Um, unmask them. We need to identify our idols and then we need to unmask them. And, and what I mean by that is we need to learn to see them for what they actually are. Uh, whenever you're tempted to, to bow down and to worship, whatever it is you're tempted to bow down and worship, you've got to remind yourself, that idol doesn't love me. That idol isn't going to rescue me. That idol can't save me or deliver me that idol doesn't want what's best for me as attractive as it looks it's it's going to hurt me and not help me it's kind of like edmund in the chronicles of narnia with the uh the turkish delight it looks really good but we have to unmask it and see it for what it is that it actually wants what's bad for us and not what is good for us and then the fifth thing we have to do i think is to rejoice in the gospel every day Thomas Chalmers has this uh, sermon you may have heard of. I've quoted from it before. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, and in it, he basically says, the way that our idols ultimately get displaced is not, through, not just through our saying, well, that's bad for me, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Something has to come in and replace our affection for that idol in our hearts. And what he says that has to be is, is Jesus Christ and his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ for me, has to become so attractive to me that I run to that instead of to my idol. That I run to Jesus instead of running to my idol. Because the reason that we fall back into our idolatries, the reason that we fall back and we run after our old idols, is that our heart never quits looking for a Savior. Our heart is always looking for a Savior. 
And the reason that we run back to our idols is that we haven't learned to find in Jesus what we think we're going to find in our idols. We think we're going to find hope and comfort and deliverance. And, and we forget that those are to be found in Jesus. And we convince ourselves they're going to be found in running to our idols. And we have to see Jesus as Savior. And we have to run to him. Which brings me to the, the last thing I want to say. Um, if you're going to finish well, you need to be wary of cautious about success. Uh, you need to understand how easy it is, how, how quickly we're drawn to wanting to be our own king. You need to be wary and alert for your idols. But, but where's the, the, the good news in that? Because let's think about this. Gideon, despite the fact that he didn't finish well, and, and here's the good news. Gideon, in spite of the fact that he didn't finish well, is still included in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Okay? okay but he's kind of like Pete Rose, except he got in, okay? He's like, he had like this great career, and he ended really bad, and they're like, no, we're going to put you in anyway. Okay? And, and I don't think that means that God like looks at Gideon and is like, well, the first part of your life outweighs the, the last part of your life, and therefore we're putting you in the Faith Hall of Fame. What that means is that there's a better Savior than Gideon. Gideon is supposed to be this, this savior deliverer. And, and for a while, he looks like he's doing an okay job with this. And then he just kind of, he fizzles out at the end. And what that's telling us is that Gideon is not a good enough savior deliverer. Um, we need a better savior deliverer. Gideon need a better savior deliverer than himself. And that savior is Jesus Christ. And that's what this points us to ultimately. We do need to be cautious of all these things. Causes of success and idolatry and our propensity to try to be our own king. But we need to see that Jesus Christ is a savior for people like us. For people who fall back into our idolatries. Who get caught up in our own success. Jesus Christ is a savior for people like Gideon and for people like you and me as well. Because Jesus never bowed down to an idol. Uh, if anybody could demand respect... It was Jesus Christ. If anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus Christ. And yet he came and he willingly served you. In spite of your idolatries, in spite of your sins, he came and willingly served you to the point of giving his life for you at the cross. He served you to the point of dying for you. In order to remove the guilt, in order to remove the shame that you can never remove on your own. You can't, you can't do enough to remove the guilt and the shame. And yet Jesus Christ comes and he does that for you because he's a better Savior. Uh, Dean Smith, uh, some of you know, was the coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels basketball team for, I don't know, 40 years. Uh, won two NCAA championships, went to the Final Four 20 times, something crazy. Uh, one of the all-time winningest coaches in college basketball history. For the last, I don't know, uh, eight years, he's been struggling with dementia. And he's just going downhill. And he, he doesn't really function very well. Well, he functions okay, but he doesn't recognize people anymore. And you, you know how this goes if you've had somebody in your family like this. Um, he doesn't recognize people anymore. And every once in a while, there'll be kind of a little bit of a, a glimmer of the old Dean, and he'll just 
disappear again. And one of the things that they try to do with him is sort of this music therapy. And if you've ever seen people with Alzheimer's or something, how sometimes they can just liven up when they hear a song that they've heard just from the past. It'll just boom, and they start singing, and it's suddenly like they're back. Well, they were trying to, to do that with him, and, and nothing was working. And then they played the North Carolina alma mater, and he stood up, and he started singing, and he demanded that everybody else in the room sing with him as they all sang the alma mater. Um, he had this song that had been repeated his whole life, and now at the end of his days, this was the song that came through in his life. Y'all, if, if we're going to finish well, if we're going to be singing the song of the gospel at the end of our lives, we've got to be singing it all the way. It's got it's to be driven into us week after week, day after day, God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And we've got to celebrate that and sing that together. So at the end of our days, when nothing else gets through to us and nothing else will come out of us but a song, it'll be the song of the gospel. And that's the hope that we find in this. Let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> God in heaven, um, we know that left to our own devices, we won't finish well and we won't run the race uh, well. And so I do pray that you'd help us to be on guard against uh, believing our own hype, uh, on guard against our own desire to be king, watchful about our own idols, but Father, through all this, helping us, help us to, to sing the song of the gospel, to hear the gospel, and to know the gospel, and to believe the gospel, and to celebrate the gospel all through our days, so that in the last days we'll be singing it still. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.